Welcome to the Hermit's Lamp Podcast. That musical intro was made by my daughter, Claire. Uh, I appreciate deeply that her arrhythmic sense of tunes matches so deeply my own, even though we don't actually talk about the music and how she's going to make it. I simply gave her a free license to make something that she thought would be interesting to play at the opening of the podcast. Speaking of the podcast, I really would like to thank everybody who supports the Patreon. It makes transcriptions possible. It makes the fact that I'm going to be acquiring some new recording hardware in the next month possible. And it also facilitates me continuing to prioritize this project because, as you might imagine, I have a lot of on the go. It allows me to continue to prioritize what amounts to basically a whole workday of my month set aside for this project. If you have been enjoying this podcast and all 92 episodes before this one, if you think accessibility is important as I do, then you can support the transcription process as well as continue to support me in providing this podcast to the world. Jump on over to patreon.com slash the hermit's lamp. Every little bit helps. Welcome to the Hermit's Lamp Podcast, episode 93. I am here with Rebecca Bayer, uh, who is uh, herbalist and uh, plant person and does all sorts of wonderful things uh, in that environment. Um, for those who don't know you, Rebecca, give us, give us a quick introduction. Who are you and what are you, what are you about? Hi. Um, I, what am I about? I guess I'm about Appalachia. And I'm about plants, and I'm about traditional witchcraft. Those thing, those three things, I think. <laughs> yeah. Well, so if people don't know what Appalachia is, let's, yeah. let's start with that because maybe not everybody does. That's a, that's so interesting, and I love that you all are up in Canada. So it's really cool to to know you don't know what Appalachia is. I mean, I I think people I do, but yeah, yeah. let's let's yeah, let's make sure that. nobody has to go Google anything mid podcast. That's such a good idea. Yeah, Appalachia is a region which is debated. Um, that's cultural and ecological in the eastern side of the United States. It's a mountain range that st- extends from culturally, I would say, uh, you know, western Pennsylvania through northern Georgia, but mountain-wise and ecologically through a few different regions on the eastern seaboard, kind of inland. So mm-hmm. it's a big mountain range, the Appalachian Mountains. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of uh, spiritual tradition that's kind of from that area, right? Like a lot of sort of more folk magic and, uh, you know, those kinds of approaches, right? Yeah, and that's one of the things that I am a student of and teach is Appalachian folk magic and I'm very passionate about and especially where plants and plant lore come into that story. Mm-hmm. So... Did you grow up with that, or did you find your way into it? Like, how, how did that come about for you? That's a good question. I did not grow up with it. I grew up on a farm in New Jersey. Okay. And, yeah. Yeah. 
and halfway in both states. And it's funny because when I tell people I'm from New Jersey, they're like, oh, you're not, you don't seem like you're from New Jersey at all. And I'm like, are you saying like I'm not an asshole? Like what? <laughs> <laughs> What are you saying? I don't know if I'm allowed to say that on the air. But I'm sorry to everybody in New Jersey who's listened to this. Uh. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's I mean, that's, I'm sorry because I like, you know, I had a beautiful upbringing in a very pretty little country spot in central New Jersey. Mm-hmm. And um, I loved our little farm. But we didn't raise plants. We just raised animals. Okay. <clears throat> but I've always loved, I feel like since I was a little girl, I wanted to be a witch. It was just something I've always been interested in and I was raised in the Unitarian Universalist Church, so I met a lot of witches, and mm. it was easy to start studying witchcraft seriously. At around 12, I kind of dedicated myself to studying it, and through that, became more interested in plants, and um, realizing that they could be used more, <laughs> for more than food. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so, how did the how did the Appalachian part come in? Like, did you meet somebody? Did you, like you know, go stand on a mountain and be like, oh, this is home? Like, <laughs> That's a good question. Um, I was obviously a very weird kid, as we, most of us probably were, Sure. and very socially isolated. We moved nine times when I was a kid, so I didn't have strong connections with other human adults mm-hmm. until I was 18. When I moved to upstate New York to go to college at Bard College, and I met my now best friend, Sarah Lynch Thomason, who's an Appalachian ballad singer, who's from Nashville, Tennessee. And she moved to Asheville right after we graduated from college. She graduated ahead of me. And she was like, you have to move here. Asheville, mm-hmm. North Carolina. Like, it is. What's up? So I just packed my truck with all my things and drove to Asheville. And after I graduated from college, and I just lived in her living room for two weeks. Right. And then I, I just fell in love. I tried to leave once, I think, to go back up to Vermont, where I had been living before. Mm-hmm. And I think that lasted like three weeks, and I came back. Mm-hmm. So... That was in 2010 when I moved here, so I've been here for longer now than anywhere I've ever lived in my life. It's interesting how, um, you know, like I think about, I mean, Vermont's got lots of mountains. Upstate New York's got lots of mountains. You know, it's it's funny how, you know, from a geologic point of view anyway, there's just like, oh, look, well, it's all mountains. What about, why, what is it about those mountains? What is it about that place mm-hmm. that, that, drew you in or captivated you? That's a good question. Um, well, I think geologically speaking, the Appalachians are so special because they're some of the oldest mountains in the world, which we forget in America. We often like to exoticize, and I'll say North America to include all of us on this continent, we like to exoticize things from far away. But we have some of the most ancient land masses in existence uh, right at our fingertips, and it's pretty incredible. And plant communities that are very unique. And to me, the, the extreme biodiversity of where we live in southern Appalachia, where I live, uh, is a temperate rainforest. So we have more plants than anywhere except for uh, North Alabama, which has the most diverse plant life in the United States. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. And did you find, do you feel like, you know, like lots of people talk about sort of spirit of place, right? as a thing that's that sort of emerged into people's awareness more over time. And, you know, at least more recently from my perspective, um, you know, do you feel that that's part of it for you? Like, is there, is there a spirit of the land where you're actually hanging out? That's, that's part of your life. Yes. My friend, um, Marcus McCoy, who, uh, started the Virtus Genii symposium when I was 
early 20s. You probably know him. Um, when I was in my early 20s, I stumbled across his blog, Bioregional Animism, and it really changed. It gave me words for things that I had felt but I didn't know were names for. And other bloggers have now gone on to further that idea, um, which was, you know, kind of coined, I'd say, in the 70s with the rise of bioregional scholarship on just, like, policy and land management. They took it deeper, you know. I wrote a lot of my thesis. I, I have a master's degree in Appalachian Studies, and I wrote my thesis on, uh, which is really silly, I know. But it, um, I looked a lot at, like, the history of bioregionalism and, like, what makes Appalachia and regional studies important. Mm-hmm. And to me, it in this globalized world, you know, we struggle for meaning. You can see it everywhere, especially white folks, like, without any cultural... Um, strong cultural ties will grab onto any strong cultural tie from any culture that we can find. <laughs> and yeah. And I think a lot of that comes from a lack of grounding in place. So to me, I do think there is a spirit of Appalachia. My friend Byron Ballard, who's a well-known Appalachian folk practitioner. She in our area says there's a mother Appalachia, this kind of en- like entity that mm-hmm. makes this place so special. And to me, I'm also a musician. I'm an artist. And I, all the things I do revolve around Appalachian folk practice. And to me, it's like, help me ground in, because I wasn't raised here, mm-hmm. into the life way um, and the art way and the music way of this place. And not necessarily say, this is mine, it's from me, but wow, I, I participate in this and I love it and I want to, you know, support it and continue it and, and nurture it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think it's always interesting when people you know, or never mind people for me. Um, you know, I mean, I found my, my way into being a Lukumi, you know, Orisha practitioner, right. Mm-hmm. You know, so I'm initiated in an Afro Cuban religion, you know, and that's, that's been my journey for, you know, getting towards being 20 years now. Um, you know, but I think that it's, it's really always interesting when people are looking for that meaning and they find it somewhere else. How do you go about, uh, exploring that and connecting with that? in a way that is, you know, respectful, um, meaningful in a broader context, because it's, I think that, you know, what people do in general, even if it's not respectful, might be meaning, meaningful to them personally, you know, but it problematically culturally. Right. But what, what do you think about how, you know, how, how, how would you recommend people approach this kind of stuff if what you're talking about is something that they're drawn towards? Yeah, I think that's such a good question. And it's a sensitive one. You know, there's, I always notice, um, that I feel fear and I feel nervousness when talking about these things because unfortunately the way that people communicate online is very different than how they'll communicate in real life. Um, mm-hmm. discovered, I just taught a class. Uh, this is a great example and I think it'll answer this question on the uses of fumatory plants worldwide to address cultural appropriation issues. Sure. Because specifically with white sage being over harvested and a lot of indigenous Western folks saying, Hey, can you guys slow your roll on this, you know, buying all this unsustainably harvested sage? Mm -hmm. So like, why do you feel the need to burn this plant specifically when it's not part of your cultural lineage? And I don't think anyone at this point in the world is like, you can't do anything that's not from your specific ancestry. Cause I mean, I have eight different, ancestries you know and it's sure yeah. most of them do and 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 i think that's not what people are saying and a lot of folks get defensive and say well i what am i not allowed to do anything and it's like no 
calm down. <laughs> no one's telling you that. And, and I think what you're doing when you're initiated in something, your initiation is an invitation. Mm-hmm. You are studying with a person from that, you know, Afro-Cuban lineage who's saying, you're welcome here. Come into this space. That's very different than when someone says, you know, I'm going to self-study this thing and then declare myself an expert and then make money off this thing and mm-hmm. never the cultures that this thing comes from. For sure. Yeah, because what I do, I'm not technically Southern Appalachian, but I practice and teach Appalachian folk magic. Yeah. And some people, I'm sure, would take issue with that. But what do I do? And I think it's all about how we how we raise up the cultures that we are benefiting from. Mm-hmm. How do we support them? How do we not try to speak for them and do the like white savior thing? And like, how do we um, invest ourselves in the continuance and preservation and nurturance of the cultures that bring us such joy and meaning. And I, I include myself in that, even though technically Appalachian folk culture is largely based on some things I have cultural access to. It's also based in Cherokee and African traditions. Mm-hmm, that for sure. Have direct lineage to that I need to respect and call attention to. Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting thing about a lot of those, um, you know, Appalachian, uh, you know, root work, hoodoo, like all, a lot of those sort of, you know, uh, from from there, heading further south, traditions are mm-hmm. really such a an interesting meld of um, you know of cultures, right? You know, mm-hmm. they 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 involve stuff that came from Africa through the slaves. They involve stuff that came uh, through the indigenous communities that that were there alongside those people. Um, you know, and then they have mixed in, you know, depending on the region, you know, European, Christian or other folk traditions too, right? Like it's such a, it's such an interesting meld. And I think that it's so helpful to really respect the fact that they come from a bunch of different places. They come from all those lineages, you know? Yeah. Yeah, Because it's, it's easy to (laughs) like, it's easy to be like, well, you know, this is just like this person's thing or this is that person's like, yeah. They're 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 diverse and they and their strength comes from that history, right? It's true. It's mm-hmm. true. And I, it's great talking to my friends who are hoodoo practitioners, um, and saying, you know, the first time I met my friend uh, Demetrius, um, who I don't know if you know, from New Orleans at Virtus Genius Symposium, we were kind of like doing a comparison, like, what do you do? You do this in hoodoo, and he's like, well, do you do this in Appalachian folk magic? And it was just like such overlap that we were like of course these things are so similar mm-hmm. it's wonderful and then we were like let's sing a scottish ballad you know and like because he knows a lot of ballads and then i'm like let's you know he's like do you want to learn the song in this west african language and i was like oh heck yeah it was just it was really cool because it was like living that experience of seeing the lines mm-hmm. by sharing verbally those things and in, in song and in um tradition and looking at different charms we were talking about Mm -hmm. and i loved that it was really special and what you're saying too is we tell stories about traditions being all one thing and there's one thing i learn as i get older you know i'm 31 i'm not terribly wise (laughs) but i notice things are always more complicated and beautifully complex than we think they are Mm -hmm. they're never black or white it's just complex (laughs) for sure yeah yeah yeah, and I think that one of the other things I want to circle back to, you know, is um, you we you mentioned you know briefly a bit like sustainability and stuff like that, and I think that that is also such an important part of the the equation of what's what we're talking about here too, right? Like, 
you know, if you're going to live in, uh, you know, in connection with plants and connection with the spirits of the, of a place or whatever, right? I think that that, that attention on, um, making sure that it's sustainable, making sure that there's some left, you know, like, I mean, you know, in my tradition, we use a lot of plants and, you know, some of them do grow up here. Some of them I grow myself inside and, and, you know, some of them are just not possible in the far, far north where I practice, but you do what you can. But, uh, you know, one of the things that my elders always stress is, you know, you never, you never take it all. You always leave enough that it keeps going, right? You always want to make sure that whatever you're working with, that, you know, later on it'll have regrown or next season it will regrow or whatever, because there is this eye towards, you know, this is, this is a, a thing forever, hopefully. And therefore we want to keep that going forever, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I teach foraging classes as my day job. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I do for a living. And this year I'm actually going to teach foraging at the University of North Carolina as Amazing. a college course. I know. I feel so honored. It's one nice thing about having an Appalachian Studies master's is now I can teach at colleges. And that's, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm really excited to get to teach at UNCA and teaching foraging. And you're speaking about <clears throat> sustainability. And there's a lot of interesting, confusing, complex arguments about wildcrafting in the United States, especially, mm-hmm. uh, and in Canada and any place that is colonized indigenous land. Um, and what, as settler folks who are European ancestors, like what are our responsibilities to be good um, wild crafters. Some people say you shouldn't wild craft at all. Zero percent is sustainable. Mm. Others say you can just take indiscriminately and do whatever you want. But obviously I think the truth, there's no such thing as truth, but I think a more balanced view is somewhere in between. And something I've been really interested in and and enjoying doing is um, there's a lot of plants we call invasive and some of them radically alter their landscape. Like one of my favorite plants, kudzu, Mm-hmm. Which on Gordon White's podcast I mentioned I like kudzu and you would not believe the angry humans on those comments. <laughs> I would, like, I would. I did not say we should go plant kudzu. I did not say like throw its seeds everywhere. I just said I love kudzu, mm-hmm. and that uh-huh. triggered a lot of people because it's edible, it's medicinal, and um, I'm a, in recovery from alcoholism. And kudzu's root has some great uh, compounds in it that specifically help with the cravings for alcohol. So it's one spiritually very aligned with my heart and my personal journey. Mm-hmm. So, and it was used in Japan and China for that purpose for a long time. But it's just funny because I can harvest as much kudzu as I want, you know, and like, I'm not going to put a dent in it. <laughs> but, I mean, if I want to harvest as much um, blood root, a native plant, as I want, I can destroy that plant population. So, sure. it's just so, in like, to me, saying all or nothing is never the right answer because, Harvesting invasives is actually beneficial to the environment because it frees up space for more native plants. Yeah, I love, and, yeah, I, I love dandelion. Me too. <laughs> and uh, you know, it's uh, there's another one. Like there's just, you know, I I could never get rid of it in my garden, even if I tried, probably. Mm-hmm. So the amount that I can take of that is basically everything that's showing anytime I want, and it just you know give it two or three weeks, and boom, they're back again with another crop. You know. So, yeah. Um, and those plants have followed us from Europe here and mm-hmm. from Asia and from all the different places that all the different people that live on this continent now come from. And it's the story of the colonization of this continent is evident in our plant life. Mm-hmm. 
And it's, it marks the times that all the different people have come over here. And all the different um, trading has occurred. You know, kudzu came over, I think, in the 30s and 40s from the World's Fair as an erosion control plant and a crop for animals to eat because it's very good for horses and cows and pigs and chickens and people <laughs> to eat. It's high in protein. So I just think, you know, focusing on harvesting invasive plants and plants that are abundant is a great way to ask the question, is this sustainable? And also know that you will never know the answer. A lot of people in plant world are like, I know the truth. And you're like, you do? That's okay. I see you're very confident in yourself. Because we're just finding new things out. And ecology is just like folk magic or any spiritual tradition, always changing. For sure. And also, you know, with climate change. Oh, yeah. Like, I think that that's another thing that comes into this where it's like we we might have an idea based on, you know, our experiences or our lifetime or, you know, maybe even like our, our parents or grandparents' lifetime. Um, but things are changing a lot now. And, you know, that's going to change what, what all these plants do, you know, and, and also, you know, all these, uh, you know, continuously there are new plants being introduced and shifting back and forth and all that kind of stuff, right? So it's such a dynamic system. Dynamic is such a good word to describe it. And I think, you know, once again, it's so funny. Like, I even feel fear saying, like, invasive plants, harvest them. Because, you know, it's like, <laughs> it's tough. People have very strong opinions about how plants are to be managed. And a lot of very good and important hard questions come up around that. Mm. But the thing is, we do need to eat and heal ourselves from illness. Yeah. Most of those things can be done with a lot of the invasive plants. And that's not to say I never harvest native plants. Like, I use poke a lot, which is a native plant. But most people think it's a noxious weed. They'll say, oh, that's a weed. Sure. It's not. It's a native plant. It's, you know, it's just funny that people are like, oh, this is a horrible weed. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Well, it's true. It's like, you know, so a bunch of the um, uh, plants that grow around here that I use often in my religious practice you know, purslane, um, you know, stuff like that. You just find them growing out of the sidewalk, right? Like in the city, it's, you know, you just, you go down the back lane way and you're like, oh, look, you know, here's, here's this one and that one. And, you know, and they're just growing up between cracks in the cement and wherever because those, those really hardy, you know, aggressive plants, uh, you know, one, they have a lot of strength magically. You know, in a general way, I think, but but two, they, um, you know, they're they're everywhere, and again, they're, they're the kinds of things where it's like, you know, you don't take it all, but also, even if you did, they're, they're so resilient. Like people are trying to get rid of them all the time, and they cannot, you know. So yeah, it's mm -hmm. very interesting. Yeah, and that's a great way too to find places to forage. I talk to a lot of farmer friends, and I'll say, you know, I love dandelion root for mm -hmm. its liver medicine. And um, it definitely is, you know, as a plant, I, I feel is aligned with the element of air. It's very good for spirit work and communication, um, but also not toxic. So you can use it with impunity in some ways. Mm -hmm. I can call my friends and say, hey, do you mind if I bring my apprentices and our trowels out and we'll dig some dandelion at your house? And they're always like, oh, come on over. Or, yeah. you, come in, you know, and they're like, oh, come on over. So we go to different farms and kind of weed them. Mm -hmm. And then we go home with all the things that we want. It's a great symbiotic relationship. Mm -hmm. For sure. Yeah, I have um, so raised beds in my in my garden, um, oh. and uh, and then the like the rest of it is this sort of crummy hard pack, 
you know, dirt that's whatever was like, you know, when they built it, they, they filled in because they were over a parking garage, right? And, uh, yeah, it's the, all the stuff that grows there is all wonderful energetically and, you know, dandelion and, um, plantain and, you know, like all that kind of stuff. It's like, we just grow it in the yard and my kids are like, you know, they'll go out and pick a bunch and come back and make salad out of it and all that kind of stuff, you know, cause it's there and it's useful if you know what you're looking at, right? Kids are so good at learning plants. I teach a lot of children. People bring their kids on our foraging tours, and they mm-hmm. always, at the end of a tour, can recite every plant we met. And the parents are like, oh, what was that one? And the kids are like, it's, you know, it's bitter, Harry Bittercrest. And I'm like, oh, good job. Yeah. <laughs> they know everything. They'll remember all the uses. Mm-hmm. So good. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious, because you've mentioned this a couple times now, is this sort of, uh, you've said, I'm, I'm afraid to talk about this. Mm-hmm. I'm afraid to talk about that. Yeah. What, tell me, tell me about the reservation. Like what, yeah. what is it that, that you run into around that? Well, I think a lot of it come up recently for me with my fumatory herbs class. I got a lot of really mean, um, aggressive and I would even say violent, uh, communications around yeah. me daring to suggest to folks of non-North American indigenous ancestry that maybe they shouldn't burn white sage with Mm. impunity. And I think I tried to say it as compassionately and patiently as I could. I tried not to use attacking language. I called my, you know, my own self and my own shortcomings into the conversation because I make mistakes constantly. I don't know the right answers. Mm -hmm. I'm just guessing. I'm just trying, you know? Yeah. And I, the venom with which strangers will write to me is horrific. And it's funny because you see this over and over again on, on internet communications because when I taught my class in person, I was terrified that people would yell at me, sure. be fighting in the class. Like I was afraid it would be really bad. I had probably 40 people show up to this class. It was incredible. People were compassionate and patient. Nobody in um, got a millimeter out of line. Yeah. And I was just like, I thought that was the case, but I'm so glad to see this is true. And everybody was just building together, asking questions. Even if someone didn't understand something, no one was like, well, you're an idiot for not understanding this complicated concept. And I, I just appreciated how kind people were to each other. And I see that that's the case, mm-hmm. you know. But online, when you're anonymous. Definitely. Yeah. And that's where it comes from for me, because I just see other herbalists, and I'm often holding myself back in my work, I think, because I'm terrified to make mistakes and hurt people. Mm-hmm. It also prevents me from sharing more information or, you know, providing access to education to more folks that want it. Yeah. I totally get that, you know. Feel that way? I, um, uh, last fall I, I had made a, an Arisha tarot deck with, that got published through Llewellyn. And, um, so it's basically everywhere. And, uh, which is great. And the amount of apprehension I had uh, about being an outsider, about, you know, even, even with the blessings of my ancestors or like my, my elders, my ancestors, the spirits through divination, like even with all those things, there's just like, oh man, like waiting for that, that, you know, potential thing, right? And sometimes you get it and sometimes you don't, right? And definitely online is a place where it's way more likely because online people, be kind, people. Just be kind. I'm sure nobody listening to this podcast is mean online, but um, yeah. But but that apprehension, right? And then also that realization 
now that it's out there, uh, that how much people are benefiting from it, you know, and how much people are, uh, you know, telling me how grateful they are that I made this offering, you know, to the world and whatever. And I think that it's such a, a delicate line for, yeah. for us, for people doing work, for people offering teaching, you know, and that, that there's so many people out there who are just like, rah, 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 do your thing, screw everybody, give no fucks, whatever. And I'm always like, that's horrible. Like, let's not be like that. That's no, not useful. Yeah. But then also there's like so many people doing good work, like, you know, what you're up to, where it's, there's also that like, oh, should I? How's it going to go? What's going to happen? I don't know, you know? Yeah. And it's, and, and, and it's real, you know, that tension is really real. And I think that so many people experience it around their work and stuff, you know? How do you find your way through it? I think a lot of it is I try to use, like, I am an incredibly privileged person, you know? I'm a yeah. largely able bodied, white, tall, physically able person. Um, who can appear heterosexual in certain situations and <laughs> I, um, and, and feminine, you know, and it's, so I can use those things to leverage, um, messages and voices that are erased and largely unheard in my friends communities, especially my indigenous friends. And I do a lot of work with, um, with the Catawba Indian nation and, the uh I'm hoping to do some more with the Cherokee Nation around ethnobotany and re-establishing control over the knowledge of foraging to the people who taught it to my ancestors here. And I think it's kind of crazy that me, as a European ancestored person, am going and teaching indigenous people how to forage um, because their own knowledge was erased from them through genocide. And it's, to me, like, acknowledging those things. And, like, when we come together as people in the real world and real life together, me and my friends in those nations, we can create pretty amazing things. And we talk about really hard, uncomfortable, scary stuff. And it's tough. You know, it's hard. It brings up a lot for both of us. Mm-hmm. But instead of allowing it to paralyze us and prevent us, we're like, what can we build from this space? Like, where do we go forward? Let's acknowledge these things. Talk about the hard stuff, the history, the um, harm caused by my ancestors. And let's build something new from that, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think that's really tough is because we don't know what to do. None of us really know. And um, I, for me, like constantly giving word, voice, accolade, and when I have extra resources, putting my resources towards the people whose land this was and is mm-hmm. still, that to me is what I can do. And I know that's not what everyone would say is the best way. But for me, I, know I don't, <laughs> unfortunately, <laughs> being a Appalachian Folk magical practitioner is definitely not a great way to make a lot of money. Um, I don't have a ton of resources and I have a lot of debt. Uh-huh. So, but I have a lot of um, non-monetary resources like access to academic information. So I do a lot of research for my friends who don't have access to journals. Mm-hmm. And I give them my, you know, university, don't tell my university, I give them my login. Nobody from university is listening, it's fine. No, they're not, don't worry. Um but just finding ways to constantly figure out like, okay, who am I speaking for? How can I help make space for others to speak? And how can I make my resources available to them that are most helpful and not what I think is most helpful, but what they need. Yeah. I think that part about um, asking people what they need. I mean, I think it's such a, such a piece that gets overlooked so often in any kind of restorative approach. 
Yes. Right. That Could like, you, sort of, you know, yeah. say your story, like whatever, whatever it was, personal thing, uh, you know, a generational thing or whatever. Say, Hey, I'm really sorry this happened. And then ask, like, is there something you need? Is there something that, that you think that I might be able to do that you need? And then you can really see where the conversation goes, right? Because I, I find so often people make these apologies or, you know, like, you know, I mean, again, I, maybe I'm being judgmental about people who are raging against you about using White Sage online. But I'm like, listen, just start with an apology or just start with saying, huh, well, what, what could I do instead? What might make sense, you know? And maybe, maybe there are people and probably there are people who a hundred percent like have a deep, deep connection to that plant or, you know, like the, the white sage plant, or there are lots of ways in which you can procure stuff sustainably if you want to, like, yeah. you know, I, I got some stuff here. There's a, a, a new farmer in Ontario who started growing stuff. You know, we got laid off from his job and he, he just, you know, started expanding what he was already farming for himself. And it's great. You know, it's, it's, it's local. It's, it's organic. It's, you know, it's sustainably harvest because he's farming it himself. Right. You know, it's yeah. great. Right. So like, there's lots of options, but being mad about it, that's not like, that doesn't help anybody. And yeah, they don't and, like being told they can't do something. Right? People are mad at me for saying, and I didn't say that. I said, Hey, maybe listen to indigenous people yeah. and two, look at how this plant is now entering threatened status. Like these are two things that are very important for different mm -hmm. reasons. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and I think too, you know, I mean, it's, it's always something that's very interesting to me because my approach to working with plants outside of my traditional stuff, which I learned from my elders is I go for walks in the ravine, you know, or in the, the forest in the valley here, uh, or even in the laneways. And when I find a plant, like something will grab my attention and I'll be like, huh, what are you? What's going on? And I'll just sit down and hang out with it for a while. Yeah. And, you know, none of those plants are mad. I've yet to find an angry plant, you know? I mean, like th th that, that kind of like conflicty energy, you know, even, even plants that are in competition with each other or whatever, I never have that feeling from them that they have that aggressiveness you know, and I think that it's an interesting thing to sort of ask yourself when, when you're working with plants, like, what is the energy of this plant and how am I aligned with it? And how are my feelings aligned with it? And what's going on from there? You know, I don't know. Does that make any sense to you? Oh, definitely. And I think I totally agree with you. And I, and I was talking to a friend the other day and he's like, how do we separate the spiritual from the political? Mm -hmm. And I was like, I don't think we can. And I don't think we should at this point, but I think I see why people want to. They say, oh, can we just leave politics out of it? Sure. Like, well, that would be great. But unfortunately, with the way things are, we can't. And it's there's, you know, a lot of uh, Internet explosions around things like that mm -hmm. because people are like, well, you don't bring up politics at this event. And it's like, uh, well, you can't talk about plants or harvesting or medicine or magic. And not talk about the people it's come from, how we know about it, yeah. and the story of how we've got to this point. And it, we we need to do better, as, you know, as a community, especially you know, in the white herbal world, and um, white practitioners need to do better about being open to like talking about hard stuff and realizing it doesn't mean they have to fling themselves off a cliff. You know, For sure, right? 
think yeah. sometimes people think that's what people are asking of them, and it's like no one is asking you to fling yourself off a cliff. Maybe some people are, but you don't have to do that. And it's just about being able to say like, whoa, what's the real story of how I got this information? Yeah. And, you know, the real story of when I harvest poke, I know what poke's medicinal uses are because indigenous and African folks told my ancestors those things. Yeah. So I need to, every time I work with that plant, I think about that. And I don't think about it in a negative or combative way. I think like you're saying, I think about it in a like, thank you, gratitude, yeah. a building. Yeah, I don't think we can ever separate. I mean, yeah, I don't think we can really ever separate or ought to, as you say at this time, separate politics from our spirituality. You know, I, I think that, that that makes no sense at all to me. And even historically, you know, you look at a lot of, uh, you know, like the the stories of the Orishas going back, you know, um, so many of them demarcate political shifts in power and other kinds of things. That are, that are historical. You know, this group came in, they took over this, uh, this region, they deposed the kind of person who was in charge, and the spirit that that person, uh, you know, was, was most aligned with got a new story where they got demoted somehow because of something, right? Or what have you. You know, there's a lot of that. And it's why when I wrote the book that goes with my deck, um, I included the politics, a bunch of politics all through it. And even a chapter in the front that's the, the header is like, why are there politics in this book? And, you know, and it's like, there's a few pages on like, why, why I wanted to, you know, really make sure I was engaging and honoring some of that political content because it's true of the religion. It's true of the world. And it's true for people who are living in the world and using these tools or these plants or whatever. We're all running into politics all the time, you know? And so I, I, the idea that we could free ourselves from that somehow is, um, I don't know, reminds me very much of like the golden dawn notion of like, we'll get back to like the one true history behind all of the movement of the last, you know, thousands of years since Egypt and we'll, you know, access pure spiritual being and whatever. It's like, no, that that doesn't exist, you know? I think you're so right. That was really well said, and I totally agree. And I, it's, to me, like, I don't want to shame the, like, when I hang out with a lot of hippies in Asheville, and they're like, we're one human family. I'm like, we are, you're right. And it's, it's great. We're all humans. We have these shared human experiences. But within that human experience, my experience is very different than my friend who's, you know, Latinx or, you know, a person of color or, um, disabled or differently abled or, you know, uh, blind or deaf or like anybody that experiences the world and, and the, unfortunately the baggage that the world puts upon them in our mm-hmm. culture, the different reasons and the different oppressions that people experience. I don't understand the like, for me, it's difficult to understand when people are like, let's just pretend those things don't exist because it's hard. Sure. To deal with, and it's hard when you don't experience a lot of those things to be compassionate enough to say, what would it be like? What, how can I put myself in that person's shoes? Mm-hmm. And be compassionate to them and be like, wow, you have had it way more difficult than me. And that doesn't mean that once again, I need to jump off a cliff, but it means I need to be aware of how I move through the world and who I'm stepping on, who I'm profiting off of, mm-hmm. and who, who I'm supporting. In the way that they would like to be supported, not the way I think they should be supported. And I said, I don't, I always tell my students, like, I don't know the answers. I have no idea what I'm talking about. I'm just, (laughs) I do have some idea, but I, I'm guessing and I'm I'm trying to listen to my friends 
and what their needs actually are. And I make mistakes, mm-hmm. and I have to say sorry, like you said, and then ask, "What you? What word did you use? Recon, um, re, not reconstructed, but re used a great word to kind of describe that." Um, asking somebody, "What can I do? What do you need from me?" Mm-hmm. To true apology. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I can't remember right now, but uh, you can rewind and listen to it later. <laughs> yeah. Well, that word, you know, mm-hmm. and that concept of that to me is so integral in our in our work, especially with plants. It's so complicated. And like I said, many people will either say right on, you know, or say, "Wow, she's a crazy communist," you know, or "Wow, she's actually." horrible and she shouldn't harvest any plants at all and i know at some point i want everyone to like me <laughs> you know mm-hmm. i want everyone i'm a very people pleasing person being socialized female growing up you know i always want to make everyone happy and feel safe also quadruple cancer here wow it's, it's a lot rough. of cancer it's a lot it's of cancer the struggle is real eh? <laughs> that's a real struggle yeah but a lot of fire too so it's hard to, to find out mm-hmm. what to truly do about that but i'm, I'm i think what you've said like and the way you handled your book, there people will be mad at us no matter what we do in life and dislike us, and that's okay. Yeah. Looking for places where we're causing real harm, that's to me more important than dealing with people who are on the internet screaming mm-hmm. for a real purpose. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah, people can people can do whatever they want on the internet. It's fine. It's the internet. I mean, it would be great if people were kinder, but well, it's the internet. So it's the, it's the modern monster we've created, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's funny. I, I've been... Um, so I guess I have a question for you, and then and then we will we'll wrap up because you know we've been on the phone for a while here, which has been super fun, and we could probably talk for a long time. But uh, uh, so my question is, if you were to pick a plant or maybe a couple plants that you think their energy harmonizes with kind of what we've been talking about here, what what plant would that be for you for somebody to get to know, you know? on an energetic level or whatever level makes sense, you know? Yeah, that's such a good question. Um, I think for me, one of my most patron plants is mugwort, Artemisia vulgaris. Uh-huh. And it, most gardeners in my town will be like, oh, I hate mugwort because it has running rootlets and it goes all over the place and yeah. it's a weed. But mugwort has been used historically all over the world as a banishing herb. Mm-hmm. The way that, that many like New Age folks use white sage now, which is not really its intended purpose, is what I've been told mm-hmm. um, by different folks. And you can read a lot more about that by actual indigenous people online if you want to look up the original uses of white sage. I encourage you to do that. Uh, but mugwort, whether burned or even just hung up as a bundle, was used to keep away evil, to cleanse mm-hmm. us, to remove disease-causing spirits and in Asia as well as North America and uh, Europe and now it's naturalized it's not native it's naturalized all over the United States and lots of different species and they're fragrant they're edible medicinal important plants and I invite you to meet mugwort and um, especially if you have German ancestry it's one of the most important female mm. plants of the German folks which my last name means from Bavaria so as you can imagine <laughs> that's some of the stuff I focus on in my work but I invite people to, to meet mugwort because when you harvest it, you're weeding out an invasive plant. Mm-hmm. You can make um, all types of food and medicine. And I have a post on my blog about the history of its magical uses if people are curious Perfect. about it. We'll include a link in the show notes for sure. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Yeah, uh, mugwort's a, a really great one. You know, it's uh, it's funny. It's, 
it's amusing. I don't know. I don't even know what the right word is. I'm always surprised at how hard a sell it is to people sometimes when other things is just such an easy sell, right? You yeah. Know? But but now I'm just going to be like, you know, look, Rebecca says you should use this one. I'm going to put a little sign above the, you know, with <laughs> your face saying, get this one <laughs> by where we sell it in the shop. Um, yeah. Yeah. The one that I leaned on a lot uh, through through the kind of like journeys with this stuff was uh, was actually was Dandelion, you know, mm-hmm. and to sort of like, you know, um, it, partly because of its notion of like that that deep taproot as sort of staying deeply grounded in my own practice and being really really like grounded in what I do. Um, partly, you know, uh, because of like the the you know even though people see it as a weed, the beauty of its flower, right? That sort of like offering of a radiance to the world through what what I'm trying to do with my work. Um, and also because it's, you know, often used for like detoxifying and stuff like that, that sort of like inner cleanse. It's like, I got to root out this stuff that's conditioning and, um, cult- cultural baggage and other things so that I can be more authentic to, to, to myself and what I need to be doing, you know? So that was definitely one that I leaned down a lot, uh, you know, last year, especially through the summertime, whenever I was like feeling feeling that worry about what was going to happen when the thing came out. I was like, all right, let's go out in the garden, dig up some dandelions, make some tea or like hang out with them or put a, put a bunch of them on the table for a while or whatever, you know? So yeah, for sure. That's amazing. I love that. Thanks for sharing that with me. Yeah. So for people who want to check out what you're up to and people should definitely check out what you're up to, um, where do they find you? Where, what are you up to and where are you hanging out online right now? Where do I work? Well, I have a website and an Instagram account called Blood and Spicebush. And my website is bloodandspicebush.com. Spicebush is one of my favorite native plants. And uh, a blood cleanser, hence the name of my website. And um, I also run a small folk herbalism school with my friend Abby Artemisia called Sassafras School. And you can find us at sassafras-school.com. And we have a few more spaces left in our year-long program on folk medicine and wild foods, as we're both uh, female botanists mm-hmm. and foragers and medicinal practitioners. So we're excited to share that because there's lots of amazing clinical herb programs, but we had seen there wasn't really any folk programs. So we, we decided to give it a go and see how that goes. Nice. That's awesome. Amazing. And you're going to be uh, in Hamilton this summer for folks who are local to the shop so uh you know we'll put a link in for where you can find that as well in the notes but uh yeah rebecca's going to be up in up in our part of the world a little bit where the shop is so end yeah. Of yeah end of june yeah well thank you so much for being on it's uh it's been a wonderful chatting with you it was a pleasure thank you thank you as always for listening thank you for spreading the word thank you for supporting the patreon thanks for being a reason why this happens That's it. All you get is my gratitude at the end here. I'll be back soon with a whole bunch of new episodes. Starting in February, we should be back on a bi-weekly schedule.